The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Explanation, my guest this hour is William Federer, and we've had the pleasure of having... uh... Bill on a number of times on the show. He's a good friend and a good member of the Exo Nation. He is also a best-selling author and uh, frequent on our guest. He uh, on on our. He's a great guy. Let me just put it that way. He's also the president of AmeriSearch Inc., a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. His American Minute radio feature airs nationwide, and he's joining us today to talk about well. Bill, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about here in the Exxon? Um, well, I'm writing a new book, and the book has to do with crisis and the 6,000-year quest for control. Uh, that, uh, Believe it or not, there's only 6,000 years of recorded human history. So you get any world civilization yeah. textbook and open it to Chapter 1, and it starts about three or 4,000 B.C. with Egyptian hieroglyphics and Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets, and um, we're 2080, so it's about 6,000 years. And it sounds like a long time, Rob, but it's really not. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. Wow. And you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. And uh, so, you know, 60 people, 100 years each, that's 6,000, 6,000 years. And so during that time, empires have risen and empires have fallen. Empires have risen and empires have mm-hmm. fallen. But one thing remains the same is that the common form of government is monarchy that power concentrates into the hands of one person and uh that highlights the fact that america was a unique experiment because we took the power of a monarch and separated it and i get into all that in my book that really it wouldn't have been had it not been for the three thousand mile ocean between us and our monarch the king of england we'd have never had this chance uh, prior to the U.S. coming into existence, there were only about a dozen examples of alternatives to monarchy in all of world history. And most of them were little city-states, like the city-state of Athens, which lasted for about 200 years until you know they voted too much out of yeah. the treasury and the whole thing collapsed. And, and uh, they had um, you know, Philip of Macedon was uh, basically the committing terrorist attacks and and uh, then there was the Roman Republic, which uh, was eventually taken over by uh, Julius Caesar and turned into a, a dictatorship. Uh, you had, um, oh, the Book of Judges in the Bible for about 200 years. Anybody could be raised up into leadership, but the people said, we don't like this, we want a king so we can be like all the other nations. So we see that all the other nations in history usually were monarchies. Uh, the first empire is um, Sargon of Acadia, and he lived about 2250 B.C., and his kingdom, his empire went from the 
Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, a little bit of a, um, a rabbit trail in, in studying the history. There's a, mm-hmm. uh, a fairly recent uh, discovery by a Southwest Missouri State University professor. He took satellite photos of the Persian Gulf, the, Me- the Mesopotamian Valley over there where Iraq is. All right, we're going to have and to have that cliffhanger here, Bill, because I've got to take my two-minute break. William Federer is our very special guest, Exxon Nation. www.americanminute.com. That's www.americanminute.com. And uh, Bill and I will be back on the other side of this two-minute commercial break as we continue from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Take a step back in time and discover old Florida cuisine at Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere. Enjoy delicacies such as frog legs, gator tail, catfish, and swamp cabbage, or enjoy the more traditional cuisine like hand-cut Angus steaks, ribs, and seafood. Join us for breakfast with a southern flair featuring sweet potato pancakes, biscuits and gravy, and much more. Planning a party? Marsh Landing's private dining room can accommodate groups from 8 to 80 people. While you're visiting, enjoy the historic pictures, artifacts, and stories that line the walls. Marsh Landing is truly a unique experience. Marsh Landing Restaurant, 44 North Broadway in historic Felsmere. Or visit marshlandingrestaurant.com. Marsh Landing, old Florida cuisine at its best. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone broadcast network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. This is Johanna Carroll, host of Dialogue with Divinity on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. While walking along Kanapali Beach in Maui this past year, I kept discovering all these shells and coral in the shape of hearts. My Dialogue with Divinity was very simple. Do you want me to do a retreat to heal people's hearts in Maui next year? And of course, the answer was yes. As a master spiritual teacher, I am offering you a neat retreat called RISE, May 8th through the 12th, 2017, and the chance of a lifetime to rest at a five-star resort for five days and experience a spiritual renewal of your heart and soul. Kanapali is one of the top five beaches in the world. This stunning resort has undergone a $40 million renovation. I walked the entire property, checked out the room choices on your behalf, and I must say, it is stunning. Our conference room faces the ocean with sliding glass doors. 
Maui is known as Mother Maui because it is a soft, gentle, healing energy. In the embrace of Mother Maui, you will feel yourself rising from the limitations of an ordinary life to an extraordinary journey of peace, bliss, and harmony, a greater sense of clarity. Our RISE retreat ignites renewal in the sacred elements of air, water, earth, fire, and wind. There's plenty of free time to enjoy all that Maui has to offer. A small deposit is required now to reserve your space as this retreat, it will sell out. For more details, please go to johannacarroll.com and register today. Aloha, and I'll see you in mystical Maui. Welcome back, everyone. William J. Federer is my special guest to this hour. It's always great having uh, Bill with us. He is the gentleman behind American Minute. His website is www.americanminute.com. Bill, as I understand it, uh, the United States government is more of a business. You know, you've got the president, you've got uh, Congress, and you've got the House of Representatives uh, or the Senate, which basically... As, as I see it standing outside of the United States, it's it's like a corporation. Whereas a monarchy, you know, you've got the head of state and then you've got, you know, like, you know, like Great Britain. Two, two different, two totally different ways of governing. Right. Uh, you know, the corporate example is a pretty accurate one because the Constitution is basically the bylaws, you yeah. know. And, how, how often the stockholders are going to meet and vote in their, their leadership. Um, you know, when um, power, historically, when power is concentrated, the state is supreme, mm-hmm. and the king ultimately is the head of the state. When power is separated, the individual is supreme. And that was the goal of the, you know, the founders here in America, was to maximize the most freedom for the individual. Uh, for most of history, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. <laughs> and so the idea over here was that uh, that you're equal, not because you're a friend or, or not of the of the king. You're equal. Why? Well, Harry S. Truman, uh, who was our 33rd president, in his inaugural address said, uh, "We believe all men are created equal because we're created in the image of God." Right. And I thought, "Wow, this is a unique idea." Uh, what belief system believes you're made in the image of God? Well. The Bible, Jews and Christians, book of Genesis, in the image of God, he created male and female. In um, Islam, infidels are not equal to Muslims. Women are not equal to men. In India, the um, untouchables in the lowest caste are not equal to the Brahmin in the highest caste. The untouchables have to clean the toilets and live outside of town. Um, in the former USSR, uh, you know, in the atheistic state, if you're worth something to the state you're more equal, and if you can't contribute to the state, you're less equal. You're voted off the island, the survivor program stuff. And so the idea that the founders were trying to put forth is that you're equal irregardless of these different things, and that actually goes back to this this uh, uh, biblical idea. But anyway, when you look through history, whether it's Sumerian cuneiforms, Egyptian hieroglyphics on papyrus or carved in stone, or the Chinese bamboo books, which was their first recorded writings, or uh, in India, they have etchings on palm leaves and birch bark that has been all the way back to about, you know, 2000 Mm -hmm. B.C. and 
And then some countries, they have etchings on leather, vellum, wood veneer, even wax and parchment. The first official document that uh, has been preserved is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then the Code of Hammurabi, and they're both written in the Akkadian language. That was the first lingua franca, the first prior to Akkadia being an empire under Sargon. Um, some of the Jewish uh, oral traditions think that he was Nimrod, um, but uh, it was a little city. So you'd have Ur of the Chaldees, you'd have these little cities, but Sargon was like the guy that, that had this first empire that conquered more than one city. But um, but the the theme that I bring out in my book and in my writings and is that the typical form of government is a monarchy. It's like power, like like Newton's law of gravity. The lesser mass is attracted to the greater mass. It's like um, uh, the droplets on the floor of your shower. The little droplets are attracted to the bigger droplets. It just happens. And so power wants to come together, like the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. when um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, where Gandalf talks to little Frodo, and he's, he warns him, he says, the ring wants to be found. The ring of power, it, want, it power wants to, to accumulate itself. And, um, and so uh, I go through history, and you look at all these different civilizations. So whether it's uh, Assyria and Anasherpal, and, uh, and then the Elamites, which became Persia with Cyrus the Great, which we call today Iran. Uh, but for a while, the Cyrus the Great's Achaemenid Persian Empire was the largest empire in the world till it was conquered by Alexander the Great. And his empire was the largest in the world. And, um, you know, Alexander the Great took over his dad's army at age 19, and by the time he was 32, he had conquered the world. And then he died in a drunken stupor after two weeks, and, and it was split up. But, uh, but we see that from the Egyptian pharaohs to the Indian maharajas to the Chinese emperors to the African Nubian princes to the Aztec Montezumas and the Incas, that power always concentrates. And sort of interesting that in a lot of these uh, cultures, the emperor claimed a divine status. Uh, the Chinese emperor claimed a mandate from heaven, and the, the Khans of the Central Asia claimed that they were, you know, this divine. And, of course, the pharaohs and, and the, in Babylon, you know, they, they claimed that in, in this Julius Caesar, you know, the Caesars eventually had their image worshipped as, as an idol. And, and so the people were down on the bottom, and the, the god, god or the gods was up in heaven, and then this leader put himself in as the mediator, and it was his way to sort of maintain this control over the masses. That's why, you know, when you study the birth of America, it was largely a Protestant movement, Protestant Christian, with this concept that each individual has a relationship with God apart from a a church structure, so to speak, or uh, apart from a king. You know, the kings, once, you know, Europe became Christian, they still sort of hung on to that with what's called the divine right of kings. So the kings would say, hey, God picked me to be the king, so whatever my will is must be God's will because he put me here. And so it was, a, you know, it was a little bit stepped down from the, the having your, your image be worshipped like the Caesars, but it still was this idea that I'm a little more special than everybody else, and I'm the intermediary. But in America, it was a departure from that, and this idea that uh, uh, the people have an individual relationship with God, and therefore they have an individual mm-hmm. relationship with the government. Everybody gets to vote, and everybody has a say, and everybody has equal uh, status before the law, and equal opportunity and equal chance to run for office and be elected and even be the well, president. Yeah, I, I agree there are certain equalities, but when you take a look at 
at, at the realistic and the reality of the of the entire scenario with all the homeless, the hungry, the lack of education and the different social structures that are found in the United States and uh, Canada and other democratic countries, it, it certainly doesn't seem that everyone is equal. Right. Well, the idea that they had was equal opportunity and equal status before the law. Uh, that uh, it was not equality in the sense that everybody gets the same amount of money and the same amount of food. No, That's but it's, it's, it's not even it's not even everybody gets the everybody gets the the same fair shake bill. Right. Well, that's unfortunate, and it's been a um, a process. Obviously, uh, the European you know model was one person mm-hmm. votes in every country the king, and then when the uh, the colonies were being founded, at first only property owners voted, and then if you had enough personal wealth or you had a business, then you were allowed to vote too. Uh, but it basically went down to those that were um, uh, well-to-do people that that had a stake. Uh, I mean, the idea was that. Uh, uh, if people that weren't didn't own anything could vote on taxes, why they'd obviously vote to tax everybody that's got everything, and then you know. So, so the idea was that it broadened to white males, and then it broadened again after the Civil War, uh, the Thirteenth Amendment, to white and black males could vote, but the Indians couldn't. You know, the American Indians were considered non-citizens, and so they couldn't vote. And then uh, it broadened to women. Uh, and uh, you know, England did beat us on that. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there was this movement of women's suffrage, and then it went to um, getting rid of poll taxes. They used to say, okay, you got to pay a tax to vote. Then they got rid of reading requirements. It used to be you at least had to read in order to vote. The idea was that if you could not read, you could be easily manipulated or intimidated, and so that your vote was simply a reflection of those intimidating you, and it wasn't uh, an educated vote. Um, and then they finally lowered it to 18 years old. But uh, but it's been a, a movement that has taken place, and um, uh, but this is unique. When you look at the six thousand year span of history, uh, that, that prior to the U.S. coming into existence, mm-hmm. there were less than a dozen alternatives to monarchy in world history. Prior to World War One, there was only like uh, maybe ten republics in the world. Prior to World War One, uh, you know, a couple South American ones, you know, uh, Australia. Um, you know, but uh, so this it was after World War One that the world transitioned from monarchies to republics, and and it really worked. It the idea was um, the word rep for republic is the same root for rep for, for representative. So uh, it's different than a demos, a democracy where everybody votes on everything. Um, the best example of democracy was Athens, and um, since everybody had to have a say in everything. They had to have lots of slaves to take care of their business. <laughs> uh, and so there was a lot of slavery. Now, they weren't black slaves. They were other white people that were enslaved. But, mm-hmm. uh, this, um, uh, but Plato said, wait a second, um, this is a mess. Everybody having a say in everything. Uh, Plato said the ideal form of government is, um, is a monarchy with philosopher kings that are gifted to rule, and they just are very altruistic, and they're not selfish. And um, uh, he described it the body politic as uh, the workers are the, the abdomen, the stomach, uh, the soldiers are the chest and the arms to defend the place, and then the king is the head. Um, that was his ideal society. And, um, and so the people didn't vote. It was just these wise guys making the decisions. Um, so people were we, just like sheep. They were following and doing what they were told to do instead of actually taking action and making decisions and being accountable to themselves. 
Right, and uh, and this is what um, uh, communism drew upon, mm. the controlled economy, that there's these extra smart people, and they're going to make all the decisions for everybody else. And But uh, the problem is, is if they decide that uh, all of your life you're going to work in a factory, you know, uh, twisting nuts on a car or making Barbie dolls in China or something, right. you're stuck, you know. Um, but the idea uh, in the, the West that developed is that you have a potential on the inside of you that if it's like a seed if given the right environment you can prosper and be successful and be a blessing to yourself your family and eventually to society bill stand by buddy you and i have to take our uh, break with the news Nation, always a great pleasure having william j federer on the show visit his website www.americanminute.com this guy knows the facts behind the facts which equals in my books the truth history is great it's, it's stranger than fiction. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. William J. Federer is our special guest, Exonation, www.americanminute.com. That's www.americanminute.com. So tell me, Bill, has the big plan worked as far as breaking away from a monarchy into a republic? Uh, I take a look at the American Union, and it seems that it's failing miserably. And what they've decided to do is get rid of all these uh, independents, bring everybody together under one under one government. And is this the way the world is going? Is this the start of globalization? Oh, well, you're bringing out a very good point, uh, Rob. And whereas America's founders had steeped themselves in philosophers mm-hmm. that took concentrated power and separated it, Montesquieu, John Locke, James Madison. I mean, Madison said all men having power ought to be distrusted. Uh, And uh, Lord Acton of Britain said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So in other words, the founders in America went to great lengths to make a government that was inefficient on purpose. I mean, slow to making good decisions, but thank God, slow to making bad decisions. That They had all these checks and balances uh, because they wanted to prevent power from reconcentrating. Uh, they separated it into three branches, federal to state level, and then tied up this new federal Frankenstein with ten handcuffs, 
which we call the First Ten Amendments or the Bill of Rights before they threw the switch. But we've seen historically, after every crisis, a gradual reconcentration of power. So it was great that Lincoln ended slavery, but in the process, a lot of power was taken away from the states and concentrated into the federal government. Um, and then Woodrow Wilson got us through World War One, but mm-hmm. he concentrated power with the Federal Reserve and the federal income tax. Franklin Roosevelt got us through World War Two, but and the Depression, but he had his New Deal programs where he concentrated power into the federal government. President Lyndon Johnson introduced the welfare state idea, and all this power and money was collected by the government to give out uh, again. And then uh, even President Bush concentrated power with the war on terror so that now the government can read your emails, track your credit card purchase, read your text messages, and uh, strip search at the airport. I speak in over 100 cities a year, and it's okay, take off your belt, take off your shoes, take off your coat. I look at every three-ounce bite. I was like, you know, why are we doing this again? And um, and so you see, it's usually a short-term good, like stopping terrorist attacks or freeing the slaves. But when you stand back from the tree and look at the forest, you clearly see we have gone from separated power back to reconcentrated power. And now it's been put on an exponential curve with the new president taking over car companies, banks, and the life-and-death health care decisions of every citizen with 40 unelected czars. And, um, and then we see another thing, philosophers that wanted to concentrate power. Um, now, uh, the current president uh, has a background with a philosopher named Saul Alinsky. But before we get to him, there's uh, four others that I'd like to quickly go through. Sure. One, one is a guy named Machiavelli. He lived mm-hmm. 500 years ago in Italy. Now, Italy wasn't Italy 500 years ago. It was a lot of little city-states. Uh, Venice, Genoa, Siena, Perugia, Pisa, the leading tower of Pisa, Florence, mm-hmm. Naples. And they all had armies and navies, and they always fought. And so Machiavelli had an idea. He thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop all this infighting, and there would be peace. So he wrote a book called The Prince, and in there he advocated an idea. The ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is so good that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal, murder, rape, anything. So here's a picture. If a prince wanted to conquer a city in his quest to unify Italy, and the city didn't want to be conquered, why, they'd hate him. But if the prince paid somebody to kill cows, burn barns, create crisis and terror, the people would cry out for help. The prince would come in and kill the very guy that he bribed, nobody would know the better for it, and and everybody would praise the prince as a hero. And it's really good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire, and then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher, and they'll pay anything for it and thank you for being there. And so uh, this was 500 years ago that he came up with this philosophy, and uh, he was soundly condemned, you know, by the Christian leaders in Europe because... uh, uh, the idea that you could, um, you know, murder and rape and intimidate to try to do something good uh, was not uh, uh, supported in the gospel. I mean, Jesus oh, never would have killed somebody to tell them how that God loved them, you know. Um, well, and and wait a sec, wait a sec, hold on here. Isn't that exactly what God does? Because look, look at look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at, look at uh, wiping the entire population clean except Noah. That's exactly what God did. Love me or yeah, else I'll me. destroy you. That's a, a, a very good observation, but that's more of the Old Testament. Um, the, the Jesus never led armies to to wipe out uh, anybody. No, that's um, true. That's true. And um, 
but the um, but Machiavelli was somebody that uh, is studied today. Mm-hmm. And so when the president's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, makes a statement, never let a good crisis go to waste, it's like, wait a second, this guy is looking at crises as, in a, way, as a way to push an agenda. Well, let's go to another philosopher. All right. Similar. His name's Hegel. He lived in the 1820s in Germany. And Hegel came up with a theory called dialectics. Now, it's not a diet method. Mm-hmm. It's a triangle. One corner is a thesis, the opposite corner is an antithesis, antithesis, and the top corner is a synthesis. So the thesis, the first corner, is where you're starting off. The top corner, the synthesis, is where you're going to end, but you first have to create the antithesis. In other words, you create a problem that's real bad, and everybody settles for your answer that's half as bad. And then you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody settles for your answer that's half as bad. And you keep doing this over and over again until you move across the page from freedom to bondage, from separated power back to concentrated power. And so this guy, Hegel, Mm -hmm. influenced Karl Marx. And so Karl Marx applied it where they would send community organizers and labor organizers into the countries to create an antithesis, to create a crisis. The way they would do it is they would find those who felt like they were disadvantaged and promise to give them what the advantaged ones have, uh, play upon their lust and their selfishness, and, and they would stir them up to the point of violence. And then when blood was shed and poured in the streets, everybody gave up their rights and freedoms to have order restored, and that's when they would set up communist dictatorships. Um, you know, Stalin, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Mao Zedong. And so the idea that these communist community organizers and labor organizers would come in and they would organize the uh, proletariat against the bourgeois, which were the unpropertied class against the property owners, or you know the blacks against the whites, or the Christians against the Muslims, or the Catholics against the Protestants, or the Hutus against the Tutsis down in the Congo. I mean, they really didn't care who the two sides were. They would just find the one that felt slighted, that felt like they were the have-nots, and promise to give them what the haves have, and that would be their way to mobilize them. Bill, nothing's changed throughout history then, because you know, as you're talking, I, I'm you know, flags are going off all over the place. You know, create a diversion, create a need. Hey, what about 9/11 when they snuck in all the, you know, it, we were willing to give away any freedom and any right to make sure that the the terrorist attacks would stop. And bang, you've got the Patriot Act. Yeah, well, you're obviously uh, smart. You're connecting the dots, and um, that brings us to the. The fourth philosopher, a guy named Saul Alinsky. Now, Saul Alinsky was a community organizer in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton wrote her master's thesis on Saul Alinsky. President Obama taught Saul Alinsky when he was a community organizer for ACORN in Chicago. Saul Alinsky said the ends justifies the means, but he went on to say any ends justifies any means. He says that people of a traditional, uh, and he mentioned Judeo-Christian background, they will not do whatever it takes to win because they're limited by their morals. But he says that your uh, only uh, morals is whatever it takes to win. So you, it's okay to lie, cheat, steal, that morality is divorced from politics. That, um, and so he says a community organizer's job is to fan the latent flames of hostility in a community, to stir up racism and hatred, to rub raw the resentments of a community to the point of overt expression. Uh, that the community organizer seeks out problems and and wants to create uh, these dis, dis you know discontent mm-hmm. and so um, now you look at today we see a president that there's a crime crisis a drug crisis an AIDS crisis an avian flu crisis um, a, a uh, 
you know, debt crisis, a, a swine flu crisis, a crisis, crisis yeah. a Gulf oil spill yeah. crisis, an immigration crisis. And um, the answer proposed is always what? Well, push through this huge piece of legislation that's 2,000 pages long that someone just happens to have sitting in their desk drawer, and we have to vote on it so fast that nobody has time to read it. And then once it gets in, it's this huge monstrosity that takes a lot of freedoms away from the people, promising that uh, everything's going to be fine. Uh, but we see we're moving in the direction. I used a little saying, whether a crisis is coincidental or conspired, the consequence is concentration of control. And that's what concerns me, that um, uh, here's a, uh, a Gulf oil spill. Yeah. And, and Holland offers its ships three days later to skim, and the president says no. And Governor Jindal of, of uh, Louisiana wants to build sand berms and barriers to keep the oil from going into the marsh, and the president says no. And then they do have skimmers working, and they stop them so they can count the life extinguishers on board, fire extinguishers on board. I mean, there's all these efforts uh, to, in a sense, not stop it. And then the president comes along and says, hey, it's so bad, now we have to push through cap and trade. And uh, even the Los Angeles Times noticed the hypocrisy when they ran the headline, Obama's speech, gazillions of gobs of oil spewing into the Gulf, so let's build windmills. I mean, how is taxing everybody for breathing carbon dioxide going to stop the oil spill? But it was this idea that you want to let the crisis get bad enough mm -hmm. to motivate people to push through your agenda. And then we look at the immigration crisis. Oh, that all they have to do is secure the, the borders in Arizona, but instead the president is allowing the immigration crisis to grow so that he can push through his comprehensive immigration reform, which has in there a national ID and even biometric stuff that could eventually be a chip type of thing, that everybody in the country would have to get it, because otherwise how could you see who, who was the illegal, the illegal immigrant, because they wouldn't have it, you know. Um, but again, it's this idea of... Um, uh, of allowing crisis. Now, the debt thing is sort of interesting. Um, uh, the Saul Alinsky influenced two Columbia University professors, Richard Cloward and Francis Piven. And, uh, of course, President Obama went to Columbia University. But they came up with an idea of how to change a country from capitalistic into socialist. Basically, if you can get rid of all the capital. If you can intentionally get the country in such great debt yes. that there is no way they can ever pay it off, their only alternative to pay the bills is to print dollars yep. out of nothing. And all the money you print, if you the president already has doubled the money supply, which means every dollar you've saved up is now worth half. And if you triple the money supply, your dollar is now worth a third. And if you quadruple it, your dollar is worth a fourth. And so the idea is if you can keep printing money, it causes people's savings to disappear. It causes the capital to disappear. Nobody can invest. Nobody can expand their business. Nobody, And so capitalism crumbles if there is no capital. And so uh, the idea is to uh, overwhelm the system. And, uh, and it's actually biblical, by the way. I know everybody's saying biblical. What do you mean? Well, you look at a story in the book of Genesis where there was Joseph in Egypt, and there was seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And the question is, what happened during that first year of famine? People said, bad economy. We don't have money for food. High unemployment. Government, take our cattle. Give us food. Second year, take our land. Give us food. Finally, take us. Take our kids. Just own us. Just give us some crumbs. And all the power was concentrated into the hands of this dictator, the Pharaoh. 
And so if your agenda is to concentrate power, and, you know, the, the Machiavelli, the Hegel, the Saul Linsky, the, you know, the Marx, uh, if your agenda is to concentrate mm-hmm. power and you could intentionally create a crisis and push through financial things that would bankrupt the country, then everybody would be out of jobs, out of work, and would gladly surrender their lives to the government to have a handout of a welfare check, of a Social Security check, of a, you know... Bill, as I see it, I, I, as I see it, Bill, if the citizens of the United States wanted to bankrupt the United States of America, all everyone would have to do is go to the bank tomorrow, withdraw their money. Bang. Right. It's that simple. Either that or... The Asian companies, uh, countries that have bought up so much paper here in the United States, pull it, put in the demand loans and say, pay now. Like, the United States is in a very, very fragile position. Well, it really is, um, Rob, and it concerns me. Um, you know the fall of the Roman Empire. Again, I've, I'm studying all these mm-hmm. histories. And uh, Rome existed for um, about 753 B.C. to 27 B.C. as a republic, and then... Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar turned it into an empire. Hey, Bill, I hate to do this. I've got to take my break. Please stand by. It was very interesting talking to you, my friend. William J. Federer is my guest. www.americanminute.com We'll be back. Don't go away. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Hi, I'm Larry Lawson, host of Paranormal Stakeout. With over 36 years in law enforcement, I have learned a few things. The most important is the proper gathering and preservation of evidence is vital to putting the bad guy behind bars. It's no different in the world of paranormal investigation, whether it's the search for the afterlife, cryptozoology, UFOs, and extraterrestrials. How we gather the evidence, preserve that evidence, and present it to a jury of our peers will make the ultimate difference in proving the existence of worlds and entities that are beyond our imagination. Join me, Larry Lawson, every week on Paranormal Stakeout when, along with my guests, we'll take a journey to prove with indisputable evidence what man has struggled to believe for centuries. Go to xzbn.net for the broadcast schedule and check me out at paranormalstakeout.com. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, soul balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A soul balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. 
William J. Fetter is my special guest, www.americanminute.com. Uh, Bill, we're running out of time very fast here. I want to thank you very much for joining us. But, but Bill, as you and I were discussing in the last segment, the economy and stability of the United States is very shaky right now. There's a lot going on. We've got the oil crisis. We've got now the federal government taking a a state to court because the state is basically saying, hey, federal government, you can't do your job. We're going to enact a law. Then you've got a change in military power during a war with McChrystal speaking out against uh, the government. You've got so much discontentment that is going on. It's just a matter of time, in my opinion, Bill, and, and you're the historian, you're the expert, where something is just going to explode. Well, you know, Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. Mm-hmm. So that's why I look, like looking at history to see patterns. Um, Rome was a world power. It was the largest empire in the world at the time, and it began to crumble. You think, well, how did, how did it crumble? Well, a couple things. It had a um, uh, the, the Chinese built the uh, the Great Wall of China, beginning mm-hmm. with the Han Dynasty, uh, about 200 uh, A.D. and um, this prevented the Huns and the Mongols from invading into China. And so they began to invade West, and it started a domino effect of all these tribes migrating across Central Asia, the Visigoths and Ostrogoths and Angles and Saxons and Jutes and Lombards, and they began to spill over into the Roman Empire. So Rome was being invaded by illegal immigrants. And uh, first they came slowly and Mm. assimilated and learned the Latin language, but then they came so fast they kept their own German, French, and Anglo language, and it broke up the unity of the empire. And then Rome had to stretch its military around the world to put out these global fires. They had a small, high-tech military, but it couldn't sustain long and drawn-out engagements, and so they had to get into a tremendous amount of debt. And so the Roman Empire was drowning in debt, and so they had to raise taxes. And uh, the taxes got so bad that one historian said the tax collector was worse than the barbarian. I mean, here you're getting <laughs> invading with the barbarians and invading with the tax collectors. And so uh, the emperor was uh, having to appease the masses in Rome, mm-hmm. and the way to keep the discontent now was to give away free food. So the whole city of Rome was on welfare, and the people were wanted to be distracted with violent entertainment from their problems, and so they had the Colosseum, the old saying, bread and the circus. And, so, um, and then they had outsourced all of their grain production to North Africa. That was the grain basket. And when one of the tribes that overran the Roman Empire, the Vandals, you can imagine what they did when they went mm. through town. They vandalized. But they captured North Africa and cut off the grain. And so Rome was brought to its knees. Sort of like today, America has outsourced all of its factories to China. Yeah. And think of it. If China ever held their ships back for three months, all of our Walmart shelves would be empty. Our retail industry would grind to a halt. Everybody would say, give them Taiwan. Just get our economy going again. And basically, we would be vulnerable. Well, that's what happened to Rome. Rome was uh, such an, uh, uh, when the vandals held back the grain ships, they were brought to their knees. And, of course, they had the, uh, you know, a lot of immorality with yep. the homosexual bathhouses and the exposure of unwanted infants and so forth. But then they had terrorist attacks. Attila the Hun oh, it's, you know wiping out entire cities. Bill, it sounds like history is repeating itself. Yeah, it's wild. And, uh, I mean, Attila actually built a palace on a hill while, while they destroyed it with the entire city. Venice, Italy. The people fled into the swamps, 
mm-hmm. and hammered logs down into the swamps, and they started living off the top of these logs, and that's how Venice got started to get away from Attila the Hun. Oh, my gosh. And, hey, Bill, uh, I hate to do this, buddy, but you and I have just run out of time. Quickly, tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and the great stuff that you do. Oh, thanks. The uh, website is AmericanMinute.com. Exonation, William J. Federer, a good guy. He tells it as it is. Now, you go to his website, buy his books, and connect your own dots. Bill, take care of yourself. Great talking to you. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break, Exxon Nation. Don't go away.